Maloli Soifu, you're tuning to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Oloingo, Osusano Suisuiki. Coming up. Fair to say that the mutual importance and benefits of relations between our two countries sometimes slip below the horizon. Reflections pour in for former PNG Prime Minister Sir Rabi Namaliu. Also, we, we, we never wanted to invade the space that, for example, it belongs to women because of our culture. A Pacific regional lens on what it means to have freedom of speech and transgender rights later on. We start off with Pacifica creatives who want to see Lengangana Samoa in mainstream spaces. One of Papua New Guinea's most revered leaders, Sir Rabi Namaliu, passed away last week. He was a long-time politician, including a term as Prime Minister, but he was also involved in the country's development before independence in 1975. One of those he worked with in developing the country's constitution was former Bougainville President John Momus, who reminisced with Don Wiseman about a man he had known well for 60 years. When uh, Chief Minister uh, Michael Somari appointed the Constitutional Planning Committee membership, Sirabi, who had uh, just got back from Canada where he did his master's and then teaching at UPNG, joined Sir Michael's staff and uh, from then on he was very much involved in the uh, discussions that were taking place quite actively at the time. And of course later on he got involved with the young men, people like Tony Siagu, Charles Lapani and Makere Morauta who were quite young and were in the public service. And it was on their shoulders that uh, the task of trying to uh, restructure the public service to meet the needs of a quite a radically changed structural distribution of governmental power at the national level. You know, when we decided to devolve power to the provincial governments, and, of course, the two concepts were not in agreement, you know, that the, the public service then was highly decentralized and bureaucratized, controlled by colonial officers who had little faith in the Papua New Guineans, not, not that they, you know, just, just because they had no experience. So, um, you know, Rabi and these young men took on the, the task, and I think they did well to respond to the, as I said, the very, very radical changes the Constitutional Planning Committee was making. And that's how I really got to work closely with him. And fortunately, he later became the Public Service Commissioner. And then, of course, the whole responsibility of actually making the changes fell on his shoulders. And it was just as well. We knew him, so we could talk. And Inarabi was an educated person, very consultative, collegial, and um, a person of deep integrity. Later, of course, went into politics and became Prime Minister, and it was at a critical time, particularly for Bougainville. He was the man responsible for sending the troops in. Yes, in 1988 to 1992, he was Prime Minister at a very difficult time. But He did something that no other prime minister tried to do by appointing a number of senior ministers uh, headed by his deputy. And uh, the rest of us were, I was including that, the rest of us were uh, ministers who knew 
quite a bit about Bougainville, and we had good relationship with the late Joseph Kabul, who was then the premier of the North Solomon's provincial government. And, of course, so we, I knew Francis on as well. So he sent us to Bougainville in late 1989. And to everybody's surprise, we, we did very well. We convinced, we talked with BCL, Francis Honor, representing the landowners, Kabui, representing the North Solomon's Romanian government, which represented the people of Bougainville. Of course, our delegation representing the national government. You know, it was not easy, difficult process, but we had clear direction from Rabin Amario to use this situation to try to be consultative and consensual and try to reach a uh, final solution in which all of us, all parties would, you know, would take ownership of, as it were. And so we did. We were all surprised that we, even BCL, Bowen Copper, made a big ship because they were, before that, the enemy number one. And uh, we had a new leadership there and uh, we all agreed that everybody would share things, that Bowen Copper agreement would be renegotiated, giving the people of Bowman a fair share, the landowners, the Papua New Guinea government, and BCL, of course, they would not be missing out. And both BCL and the national government agreed to build certain infrastructure in Bougainville to compensate for the past year's negligence in uh, promoting uh, development. So we then, of course, wanted to celebrate the good outcome because it was then we had the state of emergency and we informed and got the permission of the controller of the state of emergency. Uh, with his full blessing, we w- went ahead and had a celebration. Of course, once people celebrate, there are a few beers and so on and so forth and become a bit rowdy. On their way home, they were arrested by a very undisciplined police. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, it was uh, so unfortunate. You know, we had actually solved the problem to everybody's satisfaction as much as possible, including BCL and including Francis Honor, the two most intransigent, you know, partners. You know, it was a very democratic process, you know, and Ravi was really good because... Uh, because of his experience dealing with the CPC as a young academic at the time, he got used to dealing with politicians who were highly motivated to change things. And sometimes we recommended things which were a bit far-fetched, you know, but he was good. So uh, he had a short, difficult time. He only was prime minister for only one term. But I think he was probably... He was one of the best prime ministers. He was collegial. He was consultative. He was a man of integrity. He listened. He was an educated person. He did not impose, you know, ideas just because he was the prime minister. After he left parliament, you know, he stood down. He didn't get voted out. He's a very popular member of one of the constituencies in East New Britain. He continued serving the people of Papua New Guinea in many ways. Contributed ideas. He was the... Chancellor of the University in East New Britain. And the university's name, by the way, is called the Papua New Guinea University of Natural Resources and Environment, which is the fourth goal of the Constitution. But, you know, I am now the Chancellor of that university. <laughs> 
Freedom of speech, conduct of protests and transgender rights became the centre of public discussion in New Zealand over the last two weeks when British activist Kelly J. King Minshall, a.k.a. Posey Parker, was confronted by hundreds of protesters accusing her of transphobia. The protest has since been latched upon by political pundits, ideologies and conspiracy theorists. But for many in the Pacifica community, it's a distraction from the decorum of traditional systems. In this instance, that's of Afafini. It's a long-held construct that continues to thrive in modern-day Samoa. Finau Funo spoke with Alex Sua, president of the Samoa Afafini Association in Apia, to learn more about this unique cultural identity. Talofa Alex Sua, what is your perspective, your position on the controversies that we see you know, around the world, particularly in the Western world, concerning our trans rights? Um, well, thank you for, I think I get the gist of your question. Basically, what is, it seems like what you're asking is, what is the attitude of our uh, association and the community represents towards the controversy issue of transgender persons. We may have issues, but um, our issues are not as bad as the rest of the other trans community in other parts of the Western world. No, if you come to Samoa, you will see the transgender community thriving uh, in the midst of some very discriminatory systems. Why? It's because of our cultural recognition. Now, with our the Samoa Fafin Association's perspective, is that um, our there are four culturally recognized um, genders in Samoa. Uh, one is male, female, and then we have the Fafafini, or the equivalent to the transgender women, and the Fatama equivalent to the transgender men. So if you see um, the trend of, if you understand the trend of our advocacy, we have never wanted, as Fafafine, we are not transgender women, we're equivalent or almost similar to, because our identity, for a transgender person, you are identified according to your, uh, your gender identity, right? For the other community, for example, the lesbian, the gay, bisexual community, they are identified according to their sexual identity or sexual orientation. But for us, the Fafafin and Fatama community, we identify with our culture. It's determined on whether you are a descendant of that Matai title um, or you are an heir of that customary land or that you are a beneficiary to that. And that's how we identify. That's the whole cultural package we identify with. And of course, there is a bit of um, our gender identity, our sexual identity, but everyone has that, right? But we don't talk about it because it's not really crucial. What What is important and which is the main focus of our advocacy of Association is we're focusing on gender equality. It doesn't matter whether you're a man, a woman, a trans woman, uh, a trans man, or whatever you call it. You should be looked as as a human being, as 
with a human dignity. There are also controversies in Samoa, though. For example, you had that New Zealand weightlifter, Laurel Hubbard, who participated in the Samoa Games a few years ago, and she ended up winning the gold medal in her division, which upset a lot of people because she was born biologically male. What is your what is the perspective of your association concerning that? Um, we've never argued, as far as our advocacy is being for Fafina and Fatama, we have never argued to be in the women's division. We have never argued to be seated in the in the in the women's um, community within the village. We have never argued. Uh, to be, for example, from the Fatama's perspective, to be seated in the men's um, seating or in the men's um, uh, division or section of uh, where we are classified in the village. We have never argued for that. We, we, We never wanted to invade the space that, for example, it belongs to women. It belongs to men. It belongs to, you know, those major two genders. Um, because of our culture, we may be Fafafine and we may have our own gender identity, sexual identity and that, but they, they don't define, they don't overall define who we are. We are defined very much by our culture. And our culture is that there is always a taboo relations between a brother and a sister. And whether you're Fafafine or Fatama, you will always respect that uh, taboo relation between your brother and your sister. So even if you're Fafafine, you're born a male, and then you go and do your sex operation, it doesn't take away the fact that you were you were born a male and you will always be looked at as or be perceived as that and you have to really respect the culture which is you are a brother and you have to respect your sister and you can never mix that up we know those very refined boundaries and in saying that we have never um, been very aligned with the advocacy of the Western transgender or trans movement. We have never been aligned. They will never understand how we operate and our own paradigms of, uh, of humanity here in the Pacific region. That is also why with our movement and our advocacy, we have never taken it, for example, protesting in the streets or fighting it in the court of law. We dialogue with the traditional authorities. We speak with the chiefs. A Pacifica music artist is aiming to elevate the Samoan language and popular culture. Aaron Pulemangafa, who goes by the moniker The Western Guide, says the lack of Pacific bilingual songs in New Zealand's music scene and his fondness of Samoan ballads led him to pen his latest song, Siva Mai. 
To help manifest his vision, Aaron sought the talents of filmmaker-director Samson Rambo and producer Therese Laulu to create the song's music video. Aaron and Therese joined me to chat about what it means to see and hear the Samoan language in mainstream spaces. Talo for lover to you both. So Aaron, tell me about your song Siva Mai. Siva Mai was a... I wanted to write love songs. There was a, there was a point last year where I was like, man, I really want to write good love songs. This is after listening to a lot of the old school Samoan songs, you know, and they're all really lovey-dovey when you, when you translate them. They're really like poetic so I was trying to think to myself, man, how could I write some like some nicer love songs, but also give it a modern twist? Um, and so what I did was I took the song Tene Tama by Sipsa. I'm not sure if you're familiar. I took that song as like, how can I sample the song without sampling it, but still make it still slightly recognizable, um, as well as writing a love song about it. So Siva Mai was written and recorded, and um, I loved it so much then, you know, pitched it forward for funding and I've I've pitched forward for funding like five six seven times never gotten it so I checked it forward I was like yeah whatever cool it'll probably be another no so they picked it up and they're like hey the song's got funded uh and my first initial thought was like man I gotta get Samson Rambo to record this like I gotta get Samson Rambo to direct this music video through Samson and Therese I jokingly told Therese that she was going to produce my music video um which she thought I was joking I wasn't and now look at it she's here producing my music video for me it's like um i i love Samoan music and i also love you know a lot of mainstream music and we don't see a lot of kind of crossover because you know you have a Samoan song which won't make mainstream but a lot of Samoans love it so it's kind of been my goal to merge mainstream and Samoan music or to make our music a bit more uh friendly for people who don't you know understand Samoan or who don't listen to Samoan music uh for example like um my song Bimoni Air which i dropped couple of years ago is kind of a nice old Samoan song uh that I remade with the help of Rebs and you know when when other people who aren't Samoan uh, spoke to me about the song they're like man it's really cool we get to hear um Samoan music in kind of a mainstream space or just in a more commercial setting so it's been my goal for a while now to make sure that we can keep our culture alive or just the language alive in general uh through our music. So as an artist, I mean, how was your intention to promote the Samoan language different from, say, Kaz, the feel style? Um, he rapped entirely in Samoan in one of his songs. Um, so my music is like a direct reflection of, you know, where, where I grew up and who, like, my surroundings, my environment. And it's always been bilingual. You know, it's not always just fully Samoan or fully English. So for me, it's important to reflect that you can have Samoan music with Samoan lyrics, but you can also have Samoan songs that still have English lyrics. So it kind of blends the two worlds together. Just going to draw my attention to Therese. You've produced some really amazing work, one of them being still here. What are some of the things you look out for in a project? Hi, Susanna. Thank you so much for um, providing space for us. I think uh, one of the main things I look out for in a project is if it aligns with like my values and what I believe in. Um, I think the reason I really wanted to jump on board with this project was because I really loved what um, the Western Guide was doing with music and using that as, I guess, like a a way to push like the Samoan language into mainstream spaces. Like, I fully believe and support that. I think it's important to find and find more ways that can help sustain our language especially like in our newer generations um so yeah it was a no-brainer to jump on board to 
I guess I feel that project because, you know, I'm someone and I want to be able to, you know, contribute in my little way to like help, I guess, sustain the language. Yeah. Um, when it comes to mainstream spaces, do you think Samoans are already in the lead when it comes to Pacific representation? I mean, we see a lot of Samoans say the rock, but I can't think of a Hollywood actor, say from Kiribati or Vanuatu, unless it's a niche space. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Just any representation is important. I don't think anyone's in the lead or, you know, I think because we're Samoan, especially myself, I'm more inclined to know more Samoans and like celebrity spaces and things like that. But um, as I've met more, you know, Pacific Islanders, Polynesians, or just Tungata Moana from other islands, I've found there's actually a lot of celebrities out there who aren't Samoan. So I think for me, just in general, just representation has been great. Even if one also is in the lead, it's just good for all of us. You know? and j- just to add on to what Aaron's, yeah, I think all representation is good. But I do agree, like, I think the Samoans are really dominating the um, Pacifica space. I think, yeah, it would be nice to make way for, like, other <laughs> other peeps to come through. Yeah, like what you were saying. But um, in saying that, still, like, Pacifica people are underrepresented throughout mainstream and just in general. So I guess, like, any any little representation that we can get, it's a win for all of us. Um, so Teresa, you say, um, you know, we need to make way for other Pacific people. Like when it comes to mainstream spaces, how do you how do you propose we as Samoans do that? If it's not your conversation or not your issue, then like making way for other voices to be heard, I think is probably a good good start. Siva Mai will be released on April seventh. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs, or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team that made this episode an awesome one yet, till fast way for.